You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls... Whoever the fuck is listening to this podcast. No, no children should be listening to this. <laughs> Boys and girls, go to bed. You know, yeah, I know. exactly. It's funny because I did this uh, this master class like a couple weeks ago and I was thinking about telling them to listen to this podcast. And I'm like, should I be telling people under 18 to listen to should this podcast? Should you tell anyone that you're doing a master class? Could you imagine <laughs> if I walked in front of somebody at a store somewhere and be like, I'm teaching a master class. Like what? A master class in assholery? Like literally. Like what? What? It, what does that even mean? A master class? How? Do you? Who even says they're a master? <laughs> I'm, I mean, I don't claim of, to be. Siobhan? No, I don't. I, I mean, I can say I have a master's, but I don't claim to be a master. It's you know when you teach classes to kids like you know young budding musicians that want to learn what it's like in the professional world. I'm like, well, we all still don't know what we're doing, so <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> the trick is convincing others that you do know what you're doing. Exactly. So anyway, that being said, I'm here. I'm Siobhan Cronin, since I haven't introduced myself yet, and I'm here with my cohorts, Benny Goodman. Hello. And Corey Peza. Yep. And this week we have a really, really fun guest that I was actually super excited to talk to. Um, you know, very famous all over the internet. Steve Stevens, incredible guitar player. So many layers to this guy. Like, you know, you think rock and roll, but then I looked him up and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's an amazing flamenco guitarist. He does these crazy solos, just like super cool though, down to earth. Amazing. We had a lot hair. of fun talking to him. For amazing me, for hair. For the 80s, if there was a silhouette off between two guitar players, it would be Steve Stevens and Slash. Like yes. if there's anyone that could come out with just nothing but the backdrop and then you just see their hair and their guitar, like a little bit of the lip ring or the nose ring, depending on whether it's Slash or, or Steve Stevens. But like Billy Idol, like it, it does not exist in my mind, okay, being a 38 year old uh, without Steve Stevens. But then you go and see that he played with Michael. Jackson. He, he did the Top Gun theme, which means that he was literally on a version of HBO, HBO 2, Showtime, Showtime Max, Cinemax, and all those different channels from like 1994 straight through 2007, concurrently, nonstop, 24 hours of the day. Yeah, he's Steve so Stevens. intertwined into rock history, which is always cool to have a guest that just... They're connected to everything. He's ubiquitous. You know, they have so many stories. And he makes it sound so easy. He's like, oh, yeah, just a kid from New York just ended up with all these amazing gigs. So, yeah, he has such a cool story and, you know, yeah. very lots relatable. Of rock, lots of rock and roll stories. I, I think, though, you guys have to look at his sunglasses to really understand him. Because if you read, because he's a deep guy. If you read what his computer is saying back in his glasses, there's some serious <laughs> shit going on in there. And and you want, And here's the thing which is what I say all the time. It should just say uh, 2020, here's the thing. And then nothing, just an ellipsis. Like, what is the thing? We don't even know. That's the premise of the show. But the thing in this case is that Steve Stevens is one of the most <laughs> recognizable, incredible guitar players on the planet. And when you talk to him, like I was genuinely nervous because like you don't know. You don't know. You if were. You were oddly quiet in this episode. So I was like, there must be yeah, something so enjoy going that. on here. There's, there's like a nice piece that has uh, like come down over this episode. You don't want to kill the three of us. <laughs> Anyways, Steve Stevens, this is episode one of two. Uh, so enjoy it and stick around for the next one. All right, welcome to another edition of 2020. We're back here again with a very, very special guest that I personally am super excited about. And I've spent the last like five days researching <laughs> avidly, watching lots of interview videos. But this week we have Steve Stevens, legendary guitar player, super versatile, which I really, really appreciate as a classical girl who's in a million different worlds. So right uh, I'm here with my uh, two co-hosts. I have Benny Goodman. Hey. And Corey Peza. 
I'm almost awake, so excited about this. <laughs> Corey Pacer, who just flew, yeah, who just flew back from Hawaii from a tropical place and oh. is jet lagged and tired. Hey, don't and you have a sad, sad violin you could play just for him? <laughs> yeah, I, I need sure. a teeny, I need a teeny tiny one that I, I can bu- play. I bought a little Tiniest. ukulele while I was out there, so I'll oh, nice. that one. There we go. Nice. Don't they call it an ukulele or something? <laughs> sure, why not? So let's dive right into it. First off, Steve, thank you so much for being on the show. I got to tell you. Um, I have been such a fan of yours for a long time. I know that sounds so lame, but um, not for Billy Idol, not for Michael Jackson, not for because I actually found out about you um, on uh, the Bozio uh, Bozio uh, Levin Stevens project. Um, I was wicked into Prague when I was younger, and, gotcha. and someone sent me Situation Dangerous, okay. and I thought to myself, it must be dangerous to be in a room with with Terry Bozio and and, and Levin <laughs> and trying to get a note in. Like, what was that like, dude? Uh, well, first of all, you you're probably aware of the size of Terry's kit, so <laughs> nobody can be in the room other than Terry <laughs> to begin with. Um, How much would that cost in New York City if you were to rent out Terry's place as like an actual studio apartment? You think a month? Oh my God, no, you go broke. <laughs> but um. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I was kind of surprised to, to, to be involved in that. It was um, uh, Terry spearheaded the project. And I guess at the time, his manager um, uh, was one of the partners in the label. And they said, yeah, Terry, you sh- should do this kind of improvisational live in the studio trio idea. <clears throat> and he said, great. And uh, this is just the story I got from him. And um, <clears throat> so he uh, so they suggested guitar players to him. And uh, of course, it was the usual names. And um, and he said, no, I, wa- I would like to try and get Steve Stevens on it. And, um, and they said, hmm, that's interesting, because I'm not really known as a prog guitar player. Um, but I think Terry and I have a similar thing in that he came from Frank Zappa and then, uh, you know, worked in, you know, other kind of more commercial things, missing persons, obviously. So he's a guy who's technically can play anything, but also loves uh, making, you know, loves the gift of melody and understands, you know, what what keeping a listener involved in is all about. And um, so when he contacted me, I went, he was living in Austin at the time, I went and stayed with him and uh, we kind of kind of jammed in his garage. He had a much smaller kit. <laughs> I say, what's it like to jam with, with, with Terry? I mean, literally, uh, I, now you said he's a very musical drummer, but like he has radial symbols. I remember seeing it like one of his things where his symbols actually have tones to it. Like, yep. do you feel like he's stepping on you by playing a Bach aria as you're trying to play flamenco <laughs> guitar? No, I mean, he's a pro, so he's a listener as well. He's not one of these guys who's just in his own world and unaware of what anybody else is doing. Um, and obviously that comes from, tra- you know, the the, the days with Frank Zapper. So, um, yeah, we kind of we kind of hit it off and just said, yeah, you know, this could work. And we, said, uh, we started to think about a bass player and we said, we both said, well, there's one guy, but we'll never get him. Who's that? Oh, you know, uh, Tony Levin. Oh, we'll never get him. And, and as it turned out, <clears throat> the record was done quickly live in the studio, five days, no pre-production, nothing. And uh, Tony had a little window in between uh, his Peter Gabriel uh, commitments and uh, and we managed to get a hold of him and um, <clears throat> it was so important to have a bass player like that who could really ground everything because uh, Terry and I you know when g- any given moment could go off into some you know extravagant thing and uh, and tony really kept it together so well it's because um, he's not even refined just like confined to the base he's got right. the chapman stick yeah, which incredible. i didn't even know yeah. what that i had to like look I, you didn't even google in 2000 i had to like actually look up what a chapman stick was and i was like how the hell does this human being play it and i'm like i guess if there's gonna be a guy that plays with terry yeah you gotta get tony levin yeah. because he's probably the only bananas level bass player other than like a les clay or something that and we we were both such fans of him. I had seen him with uh, King Crimson a number of times. I'm a and I love Peter Gabriel. So the minute he you know he plugged in and there's that sound. I mean, it just comes from from him. It's it's you know, uh, as any musician will tell you, it's not about the instrument. It's about the guy playing it. And right. and I heard that sound and I was just like <laughs> I was like you know it brought me right back to the you know seeing him with King Crimson and um, and he's just such a um, you know, he really 
has a very even demeanor and um, he's exactly what the project needed. Wow. So not to interrupt you there, but you said something interesting that I actually wanted to bring up. Um, I had done some research on you and heard that you started playing on acoustic guitar and speaking about sound. You know, this is something we talk about a lot with our guests, like does sound come from the amps? Is it your tones that you set up electronically or does it come from the fingers? And I think it's really interesting that you started learning on an acoustic instrument because that's something that I relate to as a violinist. So maybe if you can talk a little bit about that and how that influenced, you know, developing your sound and Um, all of that. Yeah. I mean, I got it. My dad brought home a $35 acoustic guitar for himself. But, (laughs) but, um, you know, this is when I was seven and a half years old, but by the time he got, you know, he was a blue collar working guy and, you know, uh, we lived in Queens and he worked in Jersey and it was an hour and a half in the car. By the time he ate dinner, he didn't want to see anything but you know maybe a little bit of tv and then he was out so the guitar ended up in my room and um you know this was the the period of the the, the uh the singer songwriter uh, uh, acoustic you know james taylor Joni mitchell simon and garfunkel um mm-hmm. and i have an older brother who's five years older and some of his friends played guitar and um they came over and they said you know he's making a hell of a racket but it's in time (laughs) he's got important he's got rhythm rhythm. yeah so um so there was a a a guitar teacher um whose uh, brother actually was uh her name was sunny but her brother was phil oaks who was the famous protest singer who was from my neighborhood Mm -hmm. rockaway and she uh became my first guitar teacher and I didn't get uh, an electric guitar till I was 13. So all those years was spent playing acoustic. Or, and uh, honestly, it's come in really handy. You know, um, it's given, uh, you know, every <clears throat> every decent song that I've ever written with anybody is always started on an acoustic guitar. Yeah. And I think it's super interesting, too. You'd mentioned in some other interviews, it's funny how our generation and younger, you know, people are learning on YouTube and the exposure is the way that you get exposed to music and style and everything is so different from how it was when you were growing oh, up. Man. So, so, different. Yeah. so maybe you could talk about some of your like early influences and, you know, starting on acoustic guitar where where that took you from there once you started studying. Yeah, um, well, it was hard to find a, a, a teacher who would teach me the stuff that I wanted to learn. Um, you know, which was, was, you know, the Rolling Stones, Beatles, and because you know. you're very like Eng- you, you liked a lot of like, English music. Actually, I, I, yeah. I read something about that you were that even though you and Billy, um, Billy Idol, if people don't know yeah. or aren't on this guy, planet, yeah, know that you yeah. play for Billy Idol. That <laughs> um, when you guys met, that even though you're like worlds apart as far as culturally, but musically you were aligned because. In the United States, we listen to British music, and in, in Britain, they listen to British music. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, right, right. Forget yeah. the Americans. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm an Anglophile. I mean, all the, you know, what a great time for me to learn guitar because, you know, from the early 70s on through, you know, had Led Zeppelin and King Crimson. I mean, I, the Prague thing came in heavy for me. There was a, uh, there was a radio station in New York, WNEW, and every Friday they'd have a show called Things from England. And they'd play all the English imports and all these and and these uh, early English guitar players were utilizing uh, all the styles that I had amassed up until that time. You know, uh, Steve Howe from Yes was playing a bit of country and a bit of jazz and classical, certainly. Did he still Um, look dead back then? No, he looked great, man. (laughs) He looked great. (laughs) I love that guy. I saw him in person. I was like, oh, my God, that's Steve Howe. But then you go look at like 1971. He looked the same. No, no, no. He looks great. I'm going to defend him. <laughs> no, I love. Listen, I love. Yes, I think they're yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, but um, but like yeah, it was people. all those kind of English guitar players, and then of course, you know, uh, I, I, you know, all through the English glam stuff and uh, Sweet and you know Slade and all this. I just loved the English slant on things. I guess so. When I met Billy, I was, you know, it was like we we both grew up with the same stuff, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's so interesting just having grown up before the age of the Internet. You know, you really have to wait in anticipation to hear a lot of this material where it's coming from. You know, you don't get that immediate gratification. Siobhan, did you ever ring anybody's doorbell to actually find out if they're home or do you just text them? Yeah, I mean, you know. Were you alive at a time when people had beepers and things? Siobhan's the youngest of us. Where you you, like put 911 to get your mom to call you back early, you know. Yeah, no, I totally (laughs) agree. Or your pot dealer's not awake. You're like, ah! (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, but no, really, I mean, it's, I, I feel like kids now miss out on a lot of that because it's just like you get that immediate gratification. I don't know. I feel like it does kind of cultivate some sort of drive to to really want to learn a certain type of music when you have to go well, out and seek it, you know? Well, also, you become such a fan because you're not... I mean, when a band like uh, Zeppelin would come to town and play, it was like Aliens landed because that was the only time right. you could get to see them. Right. You didn't know, other than reading Cream magazine or Hit Parade or, you know, whatever the rock magazine was. Um, and a lot of the stuff, they kept that mystique. Bands really did kind of want to seem larger than life. And wow, that's, I can't believe they're on stage, you know. Rather right. than, you know, uh, you know, knowing everything, you know, knowing what Jimmy Page had for breakfast or so. So right. it, it made for uh, you, if you were a fan of a band, you had them on your notebook and, you know, you have, I remember, you know, like having fist fights with people over, over bands, you know, they, oh, I don't like it. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So at what point did, so you grew up playing acoustic guitar, at what point did you transition to electric? And you mentioned you grew up in New York, obviously you're in LA now, so um, it'd be interesting to kind of hear the progression of that story, how you got into so, bands. So yeah, when I, was, when I was 13, I got in a, uh, an electric guitar and I was off and running, you know, and then, because uh, with an acoustic, you, you could sound, you know, you could play some of the Beatles stuff and, um, and some of the Who stuff because it's very rhythm oriented. But you couldn't play Hendrix, <laughs> you know, Foxy Lady on a on a nylon. Right. St- it's not the same. <laughs> so I got this, uh, you know, little uh, package, this uh, Univox guitar and a little tiny amp and a fuzz box, and I was off and running. And from that moment, I, you know, I just, but I always kept the acoustic. It was all part of being a, a guitarist. That's actually one thing I wanted to bring up. I saw um, a video of you kind of going over your guitar tone style, and mm-hmm. um, you talked a lot about how you like that percussive and, and clear sound, even even with the saturated tone. Is that Does that come from the acoustic background, where you get that a little real bit, strong dynamic? A bit, yeah, and also, um, you know, I mean, obviously, when, <clears throat> when, you know, Billy came from the whole punk rock scene yeah. in London, and that was an important we wanted to keep uh, a, a basis of that aggressive guitar sound a la pistols or ramones we didn't want to lose that uh in what we were doing together and that's part of that percussive um you know but there was also when you listen to led zeppelin communication breakdown to me that's punk rock you know? yeah 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 and, sure. and it's 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 uh it was already there in my playing so to speak yeah yeah, well, you said absolutely. something really important, um, Steve. That I think is very interesting because I talk about it. I'm, I'm I have a, a pod, uh, another thing called the neurotic guitarist, where I talk to people about different gear and all that. But at the end of the day, I always say tone is in your fingers. And there's a lot of people that like, you know, oh, I got this new PRS or I got this Gibson. But it, as far as you're concerned, because you're first off a guy that uses a ton of effects. You you have your own amps. You've gone from Gibson to Nags. To all, you're a very gear-oriented guy, but as far as the pecking order of importance to your tone, what is the most important thing for, let's say, a new guitar player to know as far as to achieve tone? Because I don't think it's necessarily the, the instrument itself. And, and having that mindset, I feel like, sometimes causes people to buy really expensive stuff just right. to sound crappy, like me. <laughs> yeah. I sound terrible through expensive stuff. I, w- I will tell you that the entire Rebel Yell record was recorded on a $600 guitar. It, Amazing. It was a Kramer Pacer that I bought from Sam Ash in Queens. Uh, because I didn't have a guitar with a whammy bar on it. And I was just, I wanted to experiment. What, you know, I had a Les Paul, actually, a very nice one. And I was just like an afterthought. Oh, it'd be nice to try one of these whammy bar guitars. And it, I mean, it opened up a whole whole can of worms for that for that record but it's not about it's you know the gear is there to inspire you if you have a nice guitar and you and you pick it up and you're like oh man i love this instrument i'm married to it but it's it's and that's regardless of of how much you pay for it you know tom morello that doesn't have expensive instruments and they're just the ones that he likes and yeah. look at eddie van halen you know the, the he he put those guitars together out of scraps really and it's well, just you said something very important is that you need to be inspired which is another right. reason why i surround myself like a total nerd with all this stuff because mm-hmm. when people walk into my studio they see all this stuff on the wall and i remember we had david ellison from megadeth flew down here and he saw my house and i think he was like bummed out he's like this is where i'm recording and then he walked into my studio and he's like <laughs> oh 
oh, I get it. Because oh, this when is you, where it is. This yeah. is where it happens. Right. And I think that that's a huge thing because even when you see a Les Paul, is it better than the Kramer? It may not be, but like I see a Les Paul and I go, that's, that's a Buick. I want to pick it up just because it's pretty. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it really is, it, you know, it is in the hands. And um, I remember when uh, I, I toured, uh, when I was with Vince Neil, we opened for Van Halen for six weeks. And that one, had to be awesome. Uh, oh, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, if you amazing. could talk about that. Amazing. Be very cool. And, you know, Ed and I were friends before that. So it was, we, we got in a lot of trouble together. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. But, um, yep, please. <laughs> but uh, so I had brought out a bunch of my vintage gear. And, and, and at that time, Ed had just uh, gotten with uh, PV to do the, the, the 5150, which I see right behind you. Yeah. So he said, and I'm, I, you know, I'm at soundtrack checking my amps going down. And so he goes, hey, man, why don't you play through my rig uh, tomorrow at soundcheck? And, you know, if you like it, you know, you can get these. I'll, I'll arrange for you to get these amps that dependable. You know, my, my marshals were from the like, late 60s. They weren't meant to be on the road anymore. And mm. so next day, uh, Alex is behind the kit and Ed hands me his guitar and I get on and it sounds nothing like Eddie Van Halen, yeah. <laughs> you know, and Alex looks at me like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Ed said, said I could play, <laughs> you know, um, so obviously, you know, it's, uh, it really is to how it's the hands and the, the, what your brain transmits to the hands. You know? Right. And so that's one thing you, you talked a little earlier, uh, you said pros are listeners. Um, and like in, in the context of listening to what's going on and playing the right thing, um, I, I always like to pull stuff a little more nerdy music style, uh, more <laughs> so than some of the cooler stories that Ben would like to talk about. But I, I'm actually <laughs> interested to hear like when you're playing with a real intricate prog style or, or a very like busy style of music, what is your approach to, to fitting in uh, and knowing when to take the lead, when to step back? What's, how do you visualize that type of music? Um, the inherent thing about music, it should be, it should be a conversation, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, um, and that's what I think a lot of people kind of miss is that you're not in your own world. What you, you know, you're supposed to have this dialogue where you, you know, almost like having a basketball game or whatever you, you know, okay, you're going to volley over one or whatever, you know, and I'm going to hit it back and I'm going to, you know, it's my, it's my turn. I'm going to take the shot. And, um, and I think that's, part of what's great about music it should be that collaborative thing so i'm always listening i mean i'm never just in my own guitar world and concerning myself with what i'm doing so um and that's what, what what's cool about it so uh and then sometimes it's funny you say you don't do a lot of prog projects but i find your guitar playing very prog by comparison to a lot of other pop or session players in the sense that you listen to your playing you have a lot of bass motion going on as you're doing other stuff or you play a lot of um you know uh, uh melody lines that kind of like stick out over things and people think okay maybe he's chugging this you're not chugging that you're holding out a note you're doing uh and I, I really love that about your playing like the beginning of rebel yell it's like sure. you i mean i'm sure everyone has heard that but for me the thing that's great is that we're not talking about a solo we're not we're talking right. about the beginning of a song right. and that's what's so great about your playing is that people can actually hum that but at the same time if you try to play it it's like man it's like trying to rub your stomach and <laughs> at the that, same time man well that came that comes directly from my acoustic guitar uh background there was mm -hmm. a guy named leo kotke who could who was a big influence on me when i played acoustic and that was his style independent bass with something else happening on the top so um and the and the uh, the concept for that was Rebel Yell had been, we cut the track and then our producer Keith Forsey said, you know, we need something at the front to let people know the cavalry's coming rather than just bam, here it is. And uh -huh. I said, oh, I've got this little intro thing. I've, I've had that intro thing for years. And I said, let me, you know, let me just tag it on the front. And that's exactly what happened. So wow. um, those are sometimes those little afterthoughts that become <laughs> become really cool, you know. Yeah. Another thing that really interested me, speaking of different styles, is that you're an insane flamenco guitar player. And totally I saw like insane. The, I saw the like yeah, I was on YouTube of course, like looking up all these amazing solos. And that is yeah, I mean that is so cool. And as like, you know, a girl that's from the classical music world as a right. violinist, you know, I feel like you do inherently carry so much of that experience of playing different styles into whatever you write. 
Um, so yeah, maybe you could talk about how the, this fusion of styles Siobhan, influenced I'm gonna, you in the writing I'm gonna process. I'm going to piggyback on that before he does that because I'm going to say that I didn't know about your flamenco playing, and then I think mm-hmm. I saw you with the Kings of Chaos or something like that. Right. And you know, you're playing um, classic cheap trick. You're playing all these like rock tunes, and then all of a sudden you come out with like this Godin flamenco guitar, yeah. and like you Andre Segovia my face. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm I'm like literally because the first guitar I ever listened to, listened to was Carlos Montoya. Wow, okay. and right. that was it. Like my right. grandfather was like, "Oh, this is this is guitar." And put on <laughs> Carlos Montoya. I, that's that's what I had heard. And then I'm, yeah. I had not heard a rock player do stuff that I had never actually even seen that in person. I was like, "Holy crap!" Because you see all these guitar players, you know, the Eddie Van Halens, the C, uh, who are great at that. Yeah. But you just said, "Hey, f that! I'm gonna go play flamenco guitar," and you melted my mind. Well, th- <laughs> thank you. Um, the, you know, the, the, like I said, when I started, it was hard to find cool guitar teachers, you know, because they were kind of mm-hmm. fuddy-duddy, you know, back then. But I went to a summer camp and uh, the guitarist was a, 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 a flamenco player and he had actually, he was a Romanian gypsy. He had escaped the Nazis in the Second World War with nothing but his guitar. And as a That's kid, amazing. Wow. this guy's passion and you couldn't help but like first of all he was incredible and i i didn't know anything about it and i went what is what is that style what he and he said he gave the whole history of flamenco and um and uh you know uh, and i just respected him and said i want to i want to absorb the passion that this, this guy has for his music and um so that was my introduction to flamenco but the reason that my f- solo is flamenco based uh, now is Exactly. We were on the road when when we were opening for Van Halen and and Vince Neil says, oh, you got to do a guitar solo, man. And I thought, <laughs> well, I'm not going to do an electric guitar solo because in about an hour and a half, there's this guy's going to come out here and play Eruption. <laughs> right. Totally. And yeah. I, I mean, you, how are you going to compete with that? You know, okay. so I said, well, you know, man, the one thing that I do that's unique, you know, is my flamenco style. And I kind of put together this solo and um, and it's stuck ever since. And it's 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 hopefully a unique thing to what I do. Eddie Van Halen as an electric player <laughs> drove yeah. you to play flamenco yeah. live so that people like myself who is expecting you to do a Van Halen-esque guitar solo, comes out, you're like, hey, yeah. bait and yeah. switch, I, but maybe you like this too. <laughs> right, and I didn't, you know, the thing was, um, and that uh, that has rung true for a couple of things with Ed, um, I didn't want to be compared to him um, because I, I loved Ed. Uh, he was, you know, we had become friends. And I mean, it, uh, I grew up in New York and there was, a, and I loved Van Halen, but I didn't like these guys who were trying to be like Van Halen. Uh, mm-hmm. those, a lot of the L.A. guys were just, you know, once they saw the tapping thing, they were doing that. And it's like, find your own thing, you know, make it, you know, you're not going to be, you're not going to out Van Halen, Van Halen. So, um, and that came into play. Uh, also, I was uh, approached by David Lee Roth to, to do his band uh, when I was the, the Eatem and Smile thing. He flew to New York. And um, I was finishing up the third Billy Idol record. And I said, you know, first of all, I have this commitment with Billy. And also, I, I don't want to c- compete with Eddie Van Halen because, uh, you know, I, inevitably you'll have to play those songs. And I just I respected the guy so much that I just thought, you know, this is not this wouldn't be the right thing for me. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, to, to jump back, since obviously we've talked a lot about the different projects you've done, I'm curious about how you did get introduced to Billy. You know, maybe for some listeners that aren't familiar with your work or your background, like you don't just grow up <laughs> with an acoustic guitar and then get asked to play with Billy Idol. So what, what's the progression? How'd you meet him? How did that get going? Um, so, I, I, you know, grew up in New York. I was in a band just prior to Billy uh, that was uh, signed to Island Records. We went down to the Bahamas to record and uh, our producer was Jimmy Miller, who had produced those classic Rolling Stones records, um, uh, you know, a, a, a Honky Tonk Women, all, all the, the real classic stuff. Um, and so we went down, the record was never released, it was shelved, it, we really didn't know what we were doing, we were just a bunch of knuckleheads, really. Join <laughs> <laughs> the club. Yeah, so um, we got back to New York and uh, we were kind of like, oh, well, what do we do now? You know, and we we got uh, we found interest from uh, Bill Coin from a coin management who managed Kiss. Um, who else was he managing at the time? Um, 
I'm not sure. Uh, there was a couple of other bands, Man sure. of War, I think, you know, a couple of bands that he had, but mainly it, it, it was Kiss. And he came to see the band, and we did a couple of showcases. And, um, and uh, in a conversation, he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I, you know, I need... I need other people to challenge me. I need other mm -hmm. writers. I need a I need a strong charismatic singer and you know I need other guys who you know kind of you know almost better than me to to bring me to the next level. Totally relate to that, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um you know we said uh sorry I had a stupid pop up here. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> uh, I can only tell cuz your sunglasses uh, change yeah. color. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> We call that getting 2020s on the show. Right. Goddamn Adobe. Hey, <laughs> listen, listen, man, we, I was interviewing a billionaire the other week, and he had to wait 20 minutes for my windows to reinstall. And they're, like, trying to stop. And I, like, I'm like, by the way, I'm sorry I wasted more money than I made this entire year for you waiting for me to be on our show. Uh, yeah. Welcome to 2020, to asshole. Yeah, something always happens. That's a, all right. So he's like, you're, you're dead. You called me an asshole on the radio. We're back. Yeah. So, um... So I, you know, I, they so a coin management said, "Oh well, we'd like to continue to manage you. We believe in in what you're doing." Um, I had, uh, you know, written a couple of songs. Actually, one of them uh, ended up on the on a Peter Chris solo record, oh, and cool. um, and so we said, well, "Well, we'll form a band." And we placed an ad in the Village Voice. You know, guitarist looking for a singer, bass. You know, I was looking for everybody, and then. Um, about two weeks later, uh, Bill called me and he said, oh, do you know who Billy Idol is? <laughs> and I said, uh, and by then, uh, Dancing With Myself was kind of an underground club thing. You know, there was a, uh, it was wow. being played in the clubs. And I said, oh, yeah, Dancing With Myself. And he said, yeah, well, we're managing him. He's just moved to New York and you guys should meet. And we did. And, um, and but my approach was that... Um, it was never like, okay, great, I'm going to be your guitar player and we're off and running because we came from very different musical backgrounds and it wasn't mm -hmm. until we discovered our love of some of the glam stuff and Lou Reed and some of the, you know, I, was, I certainly wasn't a punk rock guitar player, mm -hmm. uh, although I liked, you know, a lot of those bands and I liked the, the kind of English new wave stuff. Um, but I said, I said, look, I know every musician in New York and I'll help you find a bass player and a drummer. And, and then when it comes time from guitar, you know, hopefully you'll consider me. And um, and I don't know if he looked for anybody else, but I got the gig. <laughs> so, wow. That's incredible. I feel like it worked out for him, too, though. Yeah. I mean, we you know, look, the last thing that uh, that he needed, you know, he did three records with Generation X. He moved to a new country. Why try and recreate or or you know do another generation x mm -hmm. and i said look you know man i'm i'm, I'm a team the main thing is i'm a team player i need someone who's got a vision so i can work with and and i w wouldn't it be better to have someone who's really capable and maybe you have to if they play 100 notes you take the best 50 rather than a guy who could only play 25 notes and you have to push him mm -hmm. and go oh well that's not you know it's better to kind of take the best of somebody Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's worked worked pretty well for us. I think thirty eight years later. Yeah, and, you, wow. and you, you guys are still writing, right? You're working on some stuff right now. Yeah, we just uh, recorded uh, uh, what'll hopefully be a, an EP with uh, Butch Walker. Yeah. Um, who who I've been a fan of. I love his records, and uh, and um, you know, fortunately, it's the one thing that we could do this year. Uh, we all kind of, uh, you know, hibernated and uh, quarantined, mm -hmm. and then uh, the three of us—it was just the three of us working on these these songs and music. Butch plays every instrument and engineers and produces. So uh, we're very fortunate we were able to do that. It, it's really interesting because you've you've mentioned a lot of different producers, and I, uh, um, you know, Corey and I attempt to produce, if you will, <laughs> uh, you know. And the thing is, it's about finding your tone. How important do you feel like? those early producers and even the producers you still work with are as far as impacting your sound and maybe even your image and who you are as a guitar player because I know as a producer I can be like I can do anything I want he's left so like yeah, I right. you, you've mentioned these guys have they brought you up like how important was it to developing the tone um uh, the, uh, I wouldn't say that any producer has helped me in that respect. Engineers have. Um, mm -hmm. And there was an engineer that uh, when it came time to do Rebel Yell, I really was here. I, you know, I was trying to explain 
uh, backtrack, our producer Keith Forsey came from uh, working with Giorgio Moroder and was a dance guy. And that's that's why those grooves, is, he was a drummer originally, and that's why those grooves are so cool and the, the, the interlocking between the bass and drums. Keith Forsey is the producer and he's so good at that. But when it came to guitars, he would say, I don't know about <laughs> guitars because I'd, I'd constantly yeah. be going, no, the guitar sounds not right. It's not right. It's, a, you know, what's he, that squeal? It's a pinch yeah, harmonic. No, it just wasn't big enough. It just wasn't cool enough. And then uh, and uh, we found we were recording Rebel Yell. We were at Elect Electric Lady Studios, which was Hendrix's studio. And we got this engineer, Dave Whitman, who had done <clears throat> everything from Led Zeppelin to Kiss to Mafish New Orchestra. Mm -hmm. And no big deal. I had, and I had like a half hour conversation with the guy. And I said, this is what I like. This is what I think. And he set up mics and, and boom, I came back into the control room and I was like, that's what I'm talking about. And so engineers have been really, really useful. The unsung heroes of the studio. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's that's so interesting because I relate yeah. to, I, yeah, I feel like often it's really difficult to find somebody that can, you know, gotcha. pull what's in your head and actually make it a reality, especially, you know, it, it's really got to be so collaborative because everyone has yeah. such differing skills, you know, when you're in the recording process. I can totally understand that. Absolutely. And, and, you, and as from the producer, you don't want the producer to be concerned with the microphones or this. Yeah. Sure. He's looking at the big picture. Is the song working? Is the vocal telling a story? Is the vocal carrying this? You know, his his job, you know, requirements are much different than you know what the guitar should sound like. So, and and so over the years, I kind of took it upon myself to learn that that aspect of it. So mm -hmm. now I can engineer myself and go into a studio with my own microphones and my own EQs and things, you know, I, sure. I, uh, I'm looking I at that it. beautiful wall behind you. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. all part of it. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, that's I was going you know. to ask you, cause one of the, the first things I learned, you know, as far as the engineering thing was, is what it, what it sounds like to me by myself when I'm playing is not mm -hmm. necessarily what you want to get to record. Like, in fact, you know, hanging out with Corey when he's been mixing, he's like, yeah. oh, I take out of all these bass frequencies and all that. Yeah. I remember walking into Longview Farm Studios, uh, which was a beautiful old school studio with a Neve board back in the day. And um, my engineer said uh, to me, very similar, what do you want to sound like? So I brought out Pantera Vulgar Display of Power. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, but why? <laughs> like, there's, there's literally no mids. It's all highs. Like this only works for this band. And I'm like, no, I want this. He's like, but we have a Bogner. We have a VHT. We have like this old Plexi. And I'm like, no, I want it to sound. He's like, do you want to just get an MT2? Yeah, here's a metal zone. Good luck. Directly into the board. And I didn't realize until like we had been playing for a while in our room and uh, we couldn't hear ourselves. And my guy walks in and he goes, you want to know why you can't hear yourselves? Because you're all so loud. He turns up my, all my mids are all scooped. <laughs> Our bass player, I, there's so much frequency cancellation. Okay. That, like, you, you know what I mean? So like, yeah. I feel like as a guitar player, a lot of people don't realize that what sounds good and huge on a record when you take out everything else may be very different to the Excuse average. Me, yes, player. very true. Very true. I mean, now, um, <clears throat> uh, it's funny because I, I, I um, uh, sometimes do a, a guitar clinic and I have the uh, multi-tracks of, of Rebel Yell and I'll explain what the, you know, and I'll play the solo live or the guitar part. And when you isolate them, uh, the guitar parts, actually by today's standards, very small sounding, mm -hmm. but they mm -hmm. work, you know, and right. the same with... Um, there's some multi-tracks floating around of Led Zeppelin too, And when you listen to Jimmy Page guitar, it's very small. But yep. you think of Led Zeppelin guitar as being yeah. the, the riffmeister, you know. But it's yeah, actually, yeah. you know, you have to, they left all that space and, and it, air it's for framed. bottom. It's framed know? perfectly so that it can, yeah. it can be out front without being massive. Yes, because if the guitar was massive, bottom wouldn't sound exactly, as big, yeah. you know. So it's all... It's all give and take. That's and the constant fight. It's like everything can't be loud. There's got to be something. Everything louder than everything else, right? right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So speaking of recording, you know, as someone who's been doing it for so long, and and now, you know, in, in 2020, you know, with everything going on, a lot of remote work happening. Like, what's been your uh, perception of the recording techniques and methods, and you know, throughout your career, how has that changed and evolved, and and how do you do you prefer uh, one way over the other? You know the the going into a studio for 
blocks of you know weeks and weeks uh, with everyone there. Or here's my DI yeah. tracks. Have at yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. You have a Kemper, right? I see the Kemper uh, in the background. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, there's no substitute for getting in a. You know, I'm old school. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in recording studios, and in New York, we had some some really incredible iconic studios. Uh, the previous, I had never recorded in England. This is just an example. And um, the last record we did with Billy was produced by Trevor Horn and his studio, Sarm, used to be Island Studios. I didn't know at the time. And so we're, it's, you know, incredible building and the proper studio. And, and you know, you're a little bit aware of the clock ticking, but that's kind of a good little fire mm-hmm. under sure. your butt sometimes. Um, but we're in there and I'm trying to get a guitar part and Trevor walks out and he goes, Blair, why don't you try standing over there? And I go, well, what difference does that make? He goes, well, <laughs> that's where Jimmy Page recorded Stairway to Heaven solo. Perspective. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I will tell you that we were the last group to record there. It's now condominiums. <laughs> so, so, I mean. Is that sad to see that happen? Because yeah. I remember something similar. My buddy, um, yeah. he went to Berkeley School of Music, and then he started working at Sound City Studios. And yeah. I didn't know anything about Sound City, but when, uh, when I went out to California um, years ago, he's like, oh, they're closing down the studio that I'm at. Come see it before they close it down. Um, mm-hmm. Dave Grohl has bought all this stuff. So right. I went there. And you go stand, and he's like, there's this little hallway, and it's, you know, this big. And he's like, this is where Kurt Cobain recorded all the vocals for Nevermind. This is where Tom Petty, you know, made out with Stevie Nicks. This is where, you know, Elton John uh, took ripped off the top of the piano. And it's amazing, but you see all these places. They're now closing because yeah. everyone is now in a basement. They all have their Kempers that sound perfect out of the box. They have all, uh, you know, everything that they need. And there's such a high standard now. As f- unlike podcasts where anybody with a microphone can do it, um, <laughs> you now can't just give someone go, hey, Steve, here's my four-track demo with my acoustic guitar and don't mind the vocals. You have to send like a full-blown mastered by George Marino from the dead, <laughs> you know, to make people even mi- minorly impressed for seven minutes to put it on TikTok. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is, you know, there is, uh, you know, a lot of those, the studios have closed, um, uh, but, but there's still, you know, uh, there's still something special about those those rooms. There's a there's some mojo in them, yeah. and uh, and fortunately, there's there's enough of them that are still around. I think for rock and roll, I mean, every you know, everyone was like kind of taken back yeah. when uh, Billie Eilish won for best production uh, Grammy right. because it was done in yeah. a bedroom. But you know what? For that record, it was brilliant. It worked to for that for rock and roll. There's no substituting getting the guys in a room together mm-hmm. and getting the interplay and some of the bleed through and some of the, uh, you know, uh, interaction. I mean, Vibe. you'll never. Yeah, well, how about you put John Bonham in a castle and yeah. then just say, here's a microphone <laughs> and then just play and the ghosts will come out. Yeah. I mean, there's, I think, there's no substitute for that. There, right. And I mean, it comes down to the writing process, too. And this is something that I've learned to relate to because, you know, I come from the classical world where everything's pre-composed. You're learning music that someone else wrote. And my life up until recent years has been just performing that. Right. OK. So the three of us are in a band together and I've had to get more involved in the writing process. So I think right. you're totally right. I mean, there's so much to be said for, you know, the inspiration that comes when you're collaborating with other artists and you know like you mentioned in some of your experiences you play something and someone says oh why don't you do this or Mm -hmm. do something else or and these guys do that for me all the time you know where it's like if i were to do it in isolation none of it would happen right you know so it's weird to me this that the current culture of like hired guns you know where people are playing shows where not everyone was involved in the writing process you know so maybe you can talk about how you know important that is maybe in your experiences you know you're playing live shows with different artists and maybe your involvement on the writing side maybe you can talk a little more about that yeah i mean it's you know uh, uh you know i'm i'm unique in the fact that my main gig is with somebody i've worked with for so many years and and we've developed a kind of uh, uh a way that we work together there's no blueprint for it i wish there was <laughs> because any given day something else could happen but uh sure but um but we kind of we kind of almost telepathically know what each of us is going to going to do, and I think um, I think for a, for a singer first and foremost, they want to know that the other musicians are there to support what they're doing. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm a fan of 
of, of vocal bands to begin with. That's what I grew up with, and um, and it's it's always been like, yeah, man. I you know even from the days of seeing Elvis with his Scotty Moore, his guitar player, and there's kind of like echoing what Elvis is. Do- you know, to me that's part of the fun, and that's part of my job description. Um, so I think if I you know very rarely do I agree to do something that's like a guitar track or something that somebody is sending me the files to or something. It just, it doesn't usually work that way. And I just don't feel connected uh, to it unless we've developed mm-hmm. it, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's unique. I mean, I understand, you know, uh, in, in the climate of what, what, how to make a living as a modern guitar player, you have to be able to accept files from people and do them and do sessions and uh, because you know you, you, you uh, the chances of being in a in a new successful band that can sustain itself financially are are not you know it's not like it used to be the record companies aren't going to give you the tour support and the and the big advance and you know they're you're expected to turn in the record for you know a, a fraction of what we used to spend right. so, yeah so i understand that i'm i'm in a very unique position though uh in in that uh you know if i work with somebody it's usually somebody that i know or when it comes to writing, is it something that you felt all along has come pretty easily to me? Because one thing that, you know, to bring up the Top Gun theme that really impressed me when I listened to an interview is I think you, you went into the studio for like two hours or something, right? And it just like, it just happened. Well, and that I, never yeah. happens to me. Well, <laughs> so. yeah, I, it was already written. The composer, uh, Harold Faltermeyer, had written the theme. Um, so, uh, and he was actually, that came about. I always tell people that you you know you never know. Sometimes you just step in poop, and that's a great example. <laughs> so wait, being in Top Gun was tantamount to stepping in poop. Hell yeah, that's the name of the episode, Corey. That's what yeah. we're calling it. Steve steps Take in poop notes, wins Corey. Grammy. <laughs> that's right, exactly. Um, Harold was was the keyboard player on the third on Whiplash Smile, the third Billy Idol record. He and our producer Keith had worked together for years, and so Harold's in there doing the keyboards. Pulls me aside, said, "You know, I'm working on this score for this Top Gun movie with this actor named Tom Cruise, and you know, the only thing he had done up to then, I think, was Risky Business, and mm-hmm. and he showed me some footage, and uh, you know, it's like, you know, now you look at it, and it's almost like you could see the little stick holding the plane. Right. <laughs> it's like stop motion so Christmas CGI movies, yeah. But back then, it was like, wow, that's so cool, you know? Right. And, totally. Um, so I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And he put the multi-track on. We did the session on a weekend. We had finished with Idol uh, about 10, 10 p.m., put the multi-track on, and and, um, and I played the theme. And then he said, okay, we've got 32 bars for guitar solo. Do whatever you want. And two hours later, we were done. I had forgotten about the whole session. It was, it was not a thought in my mind. And then, lo and behold, the movie blows up. And then, uh, you know, we get nominated for a Grammy. I got a call from Harold, and uh, I said, oh, that's really nice, you know, but we'll never win. He goes, we're going to win this thing. You know, he's such a positive guy. And, And as it turns out, I was still living in New York. Grammys were in L.A., but I was on the show that year performing with Idol. So I was there anyway, and just like thinking I'll never get, you know, I'm not going to win a Grammy for this, you know. And and then uh, we did, and, you know. So I tell people... You, you just don't know sometimes things that just, you know. Here's the most important question about that, though, because everyone's talking about licensing now because one of the ways to actually make music, because, you know, one of the guys were... Uh, actually, the first time that I met you in person, believe it or not, I did meet you in person, was with Paul Geary. <laughs> and um, sure. we were actually in um, Park City, Utah for Sundance. Okay. Right. And I had just played down the street with some uh, with, with my band. We were at this crazy, like, James... Franco, uh, Franco party or whatever. He's like, you gotta go see Camp Freddy. You gotta okay. go see Camp Freddy. So like, we left this crazy place with all this nuts, and we go to this small little club. And then when we got there, they're just playing like techno music. And I'm like, this is not Camp Freddy. And they didn't even know at the door what we were talking about. And then we went downstairs, and then you guys were all like just getting off stage and okay. all that sort of stuff. But. The thing that I, I, I think is interesting is uh, is that Paul, at the beginning of this year, had Godsmack going on tour for doing stadiums. And he got all bummed out, obviously, with the COVID thing, and then calls yeah. me, Benny, licensing! It's everything! <laughs> I, made, I did better this year than I've done in years! Right. And I wonder, 
I remember from 1990-something to 2000-something, you were on 24 hours a day, seven days of the week with Top Gun. It was on every channel from like HBO One, Cinemax, Showtime. Did you get licensing? Do you, I, like, are we okay? Do we have a Ferrari named after Top Gun? Is there an Iceman Ferrari? <laughs> okay, as, as, as I'm not the writer, so I don't get, I don't uh, make anything, but I have performance royalties on it, so. Yes. Yeah. And, a of, a of <laughs> and a Grammy. And a Grammy. And a Grammy for stepping in the shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Not so how many, uh, you know, you mentioned the stepping in the shit and just kind of the the, the way that networking and connections. Uh, sorry. Well, I didn't know if I could say. You could say whatever you, you want. You can say whatever you want. Oh, fucking hell. Okay, good. Yeah, all right, good. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah, we're Break warming up seal. now. Wait, right. wait till Siobhan tells Ben to shut the fuck up later in the episode and then we'll uh, He's been pretty good really so far. So there's a chance. <laughs> So how how prevalent in, in your career has that like kind of that that connection you made at one point come back to to get you you know another direction or another you know gig or another um, like stepping stone in your career later on? Um, well, it's it's all connected, you know, and and even the one thing I tell people, and I, I used to go on auditions and um, before I was with Idol, uh, not many, but a couple of them, and. Um, and I auditioned for a singer named uh, Ian Hunter, who was in Martha Hoople, right? And at the time, I think I was 20 years old, 20 or 21. And you were um, a young dude. I was I was just starting to like, you know, look for gigs, you know, professional gigs. And I went and auditioned, and and he and his band were considerably older. And um, and Ian said, uh, you know, I, he said I'd love to have you in my band, but I look like your grandfather. You know, I can't. You know. <laughs> yeah. He said, "But, but uh, you know, you're a hell of a guitar player." And and I was, I was, I said, "I understand. I'm. Uh, I just thank." I, I said, "I've always wanted to meet you. I've been a fan, and thank you for the opportunity. You know, to to uh, to actually play your music with you." And well, Ian, what I didn't realize was that when Billy Idol moved to New York, Ian Hunter was the producer on the Second Generation X record. <laughs> Ian, wow. rec Ian recommended me. After I wow. like in the early days of meeting Billy, maybe the there you know, is. I think Billy called him and said, "Oh, you know, I've moved to New York. Let's have lunch or something or whatever they did." And Ian probably uh, from what Billy said, Ian said, "You know, you should check out this guitar player, Steve Stephen." And Billy said, "Oh, I've been hanging with him." So, <laughs> so those kind of things. Social but, proof. Yes, it's it's yeah. it's. Um, you know, have a good attitude and and be mm -hmm. uh, gracious and and you know because I. You know, as um, as a musical director for Idol over the years, you know, I've had to audition people and audition drummers and this and that. And, and a lot of the people that maybe weren't right for Billy Idol went on to do other things. And But there were guys who, like, had an attitude that I would never, you know, even consider recommending, uh, you know, you know, just like ah, fuck you guys, uh, you, know, you guys don't yeah. know it. You don't, you don't know what you're missing. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I was just gonna say that was the second time you mentioned something where I was thinking, yeah, this this element of humility is so important, you know, and that's something that I've even experienced. You know, when you have that good positive attitude and you're grateful for the opportunities, it can make a difference where you don't even realize. Well, that's uh, a lot of know. things that you see as far as these these guitar players or even these musicians, these session musicians that go around yeah. and play in, in a lot of different bands. It's because when it comes down to it, how many guys can a play that well mm -hmm. B don't have like serious problems right D you know C can you actually get on a bus with them and That's travel it. around the world and D they actually want to elevate you as opposed to being the guitar player that like you know pushes Ozzy out of the middle of the stage and just does the Tony Iommi thing the whole time right. which fine but the point is is that you know there's only so many of those guys you whittle it down because yeah. I found that almost every guitar player that I've been wowed by, there's something inherently wrong with them. It's like, yeah, okay, so so like Same you know, they, they could, they, yeah, Same they could play sweet picking arpeggios, but then they're like, they have boogers hanging out of their nose, and they don't notice it, and they'll talk to your mom, and they're three inches away. You're like, how does this happen? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's you brought up a real huge thing. Is uh, you know. Uh, th th when we tour, uh, you know, two and a half hours is spent on stage. The rest of the time is you spent mm -hmm. with people. And I damn well want to make sure that I'm with people that I like, you know. <laughs> so uh, we're really, I was very careful about, uh, you know, who who was in the, in the band, in Billy's current band uh, and uh, and made sure that they, we had good quality people. Uh, yeah. You know. 
No, that's, I mean, that's, that's great to talk about that. And I was, this is a question I actually wanted to ask you if you had any sort of, from your experience, if you were to give advice to young musicians, because obviously totally different generation now, everyone feels like they can just go viral on YouTube and that's going to give them a career, you know, besides being humble and playing your instrument well, what other sort of advice would you give to someone that's, you know, interested in becoming a professional or who might be young that's inspired by you? Um, It's always okay to say you don't know. That's, mm-hmm. that's always served me fine because you're honest. And uh, I remember when we did Billy's first record, I really didn't have experiences in the recording studio. And I was being, I was, I was, you know, I was a Les Paul into a Marshall guy, right? And then here mm-hmm. we are working on a couple of like sort of R&B based things, you know, Billy's records cover a lot of different areas. And I didn't, I didn't really know about Stratocaster. You know, I never played a Stratocaster or a single coil guitar. And, uh, and I would say, you know, and, and our producer Keith would say, oh, you know, we're looking for this. And, and I would say, I don't really know, but if you play me what you, an example of what you hear, I can, I can go down that path with you. And I think, and, and, and you know, they could have very easily, you know, at the end of the night, called in a session guitar player to take care of it in one hour or whatever. But I think my attitude about willing to learn and not being frustrated and just show me and I'll I'll get you, you know, I'll work towards it. And, um, and I always tell musicians, especially, you know, we make mistakes all the time on, on stage. There's, there's, you know, and I'm the mm-hmm. musical director and after the gig, you know, I'll say, hey, what happened on that third bar? <laughs> you know, Are you like Prince? Do you line them all up and, and go through all the notes and then like, because I, I mean, you played with, with, with Terry. So like, I mean, he probably got docked at least half of his pay by Frank Zappa, you know, because he right. didn't say the right lyrics in Titties and Beer when he was the devil. Look, man, in the 80s, I was not that cordial. And I, I, I remember I, I, kicked, I kicked in the tom of one of the drums. Because... Because he blained someone else, you know. He said, "Oh, oh yeah. well, there's the, the bass player. What he a drummer! Threw, he did that, and I got pissed off, and I went, yeah. Fuck you need to take him. accountability, yeah. yeah, right. And now I've got guys that they go, that, that was me. I stank up the place, and we laugh about it, and we go, all right, what what happened that we, you know? And I make mistakes all the time, especially I'm 62 now, man. I I make a lot of mistakes, so you know, there's no mistakes in yeah, rock and roll. You know what? He's he's on this podcast. We already. <laughs> know you've made a mistake or you can blame your management but that's that's hey, fine real, real quick just for just for our, our, our listeners and our viewers um can you give a quick overview of of your responsibilities as a music director um because i feel like that that position is like almost like a industry position that the a lot of wizard of yeah, oz it's, it's, it's an enigma to the rest of the population i think people might be interested to hear um, what you do you know mark. i rehearse the band i mean uh, uh singers don't want to you know we we do considerable pre-production before a tour mm-hmm. a lot of bands don't uh, they can't, you know, we're in a position we can afford to do that. So we bring in full lights and sound and rehearse the show. Um, and uh, Billy doesn't, he knows how to sing Rebel Yell, White Betty. Yeah. He doesn't need to be <laughs> right. there, you know. Right. Uh, so I'm there to rehearse the band and get the band primed and ready for him. And if there's new songs, a uh, perfect example would be, uh, you know, we have about six new songs that need to be learned. So when it is that we do go back out to play, uh, I'll be rehearsing the band on those, you know, uh, six songs. I get together all of the file. It's, it, you know, it's just clerical work, you know. Right. I got to send, you know, MP3s <laughs> so people can learn the songs and all that kind of stuff. And um, and I, I help craft the, the sound of the band uh, right down to, oh, you know, this... Uh, a perfect example of our drummer, we, we, we rented a snare drum, we were in Australia, um, and he rented a snare drum for that tour, and it, it, was, inc- it was incredible, and uh, I said, give me the name, and what, it's a vintage snare drum, and I found one on eBay for him, and so you got to get one of these, because whatever, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. So um, I think that's important to know, that, that there's a reason that you guys sound amazing on stage, and there's a lot of work that goes into that. But he also and, downplayed and a- the clerical thing, which I don't think should be downplayed, because we, we're in a band called Lost Symphony, and we've worked with people in, in multiple different countries. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, and I want to get into you being in Japan, but we'll talk, we'll hold off on that for for now. But but we didn't we haven't actually been in a room with not even all of us have met each other because okay. really what it started off was was my compositions, and then like Siobhan and I actually only found each other through one of our guitar players uh, gotcha. that actually unfortunately passed. But the whole point was is that um, we actually are organic music, but that's been sent to so many different 
places and different things. And there's so much involved in coordinating different personalities and yes. making sure that people are didn't miss something or whatever. So you just downplayed like a, a huge component, first off, of how we even came about. Uh, but that it sounds like it's a huge part of being in a band, you know, like for Billy Idol, in the yes. sense that you're sending tracks to people. You're saying, hey man, did you get that bass thing learned? Right. Um, do you need that's me right. to send you the files? Hey, I'll exactly. give you the BPM. And that is like, exactly that's right. the stuff that people need to know because that's what makes it so when you go see you live, it sounds fake. It sounds like you are a backing track, <laughs> but you aren't. Yeah. You aren't, because I've seen you guys live and yeah, it doesn't gotta, sound gotta, real. Yeah. It doesn't, but that's yeah. the best thing that's for me as, yeah. as an engineer because I, Every once in a while, I'll hear like a, a scratch or like a, a little bit of a bad note, and I go, "Ah, oh, they're human," you sure. know. But but that's yeah. as good as you want them to be. Like you know, when you saw Eddie Van, Van Halen back in the day, it's yeah. like there was enough of it where you're like, "Okay, they're human," but holy crap, they're like space aliens landing, and that's Led Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's and it's also you know I have to communicate. I'm I'm the first in line from management. Um, and I have a great relationship with Billy's manager, and uh, and um, and he'll come to me with suggestions sometimes. What do you think about? Uh, because he'll know that Billy doesn't want to be bothered with technical minutia of something, or or can yeah. you? Uh, if we're a perfect example, uh, we're in working on songs, and we'll set, when we when we feel we've got something substantial, we'll send it to the manager. And he'll say, well, it's, can you, how would you edit this? And I'll put together an edit, how I hear it, or, uh, um, you know, some other uh, approach to something or, you know, uh, a mixer. I have to communicate with uh, who's going to mix the, the tracks or whatever and make some suggestions and things. And, you know, now with my home studio, some of the stuff uh, I can do here at home. and Nice show. rack, Steve. Show, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> did you, I'm surprised you don't have like the LEDs around everything like I do now. Like you can make like you can make all your your stuff you can, like, glow. Get it all I, I want it purple, yeah. like my nags. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind. Of, you know, I've got a lot of LEDs, <laughs> but but um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of it is 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 taking care of the business side of it. So uh, so that uh, you know. Billy doesn't really want to deal with a lot of sure. that stuff. And I, I really value that. I like being the musical director. I love that gig, you know. It's like being a director or seeing yeah. it, seeing some great, you know, and then you then you want to involve lights. And, and we, we have a lighting designer. We have a sound engineer and monitor guy. And, oh, uh, is everybody getting a good in-ear mix? Okay, what, what, mm -hmm. what do I have? Can I hear your mix to make sure that you're hearing things correctly? And um you know it's all whatever it takes yeah. man <laughs> you know that's great and like i said i think i think a lot of people don't don't think about that side of 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 touring and, and of, of putting on an amazing show so we're, we're coming up at the end of our our first hour here uh i want to make sure that everyone barely knows. scratched the surface yeah we got, we, we i have so many have questions more, this is why we do two episodes because like we we become <laughs> hopefully like friends for this moment and then we can get into like the real meat and potatoes <laughs> of Steve Stevens. Well, we want to make enough. sure that people uh, check out your new website, uh, stevestevensguitar.com. Right. And you're on Cameo. I'm on Cameo, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Tell, yeah. tell people real quick about that. Well, you can you can uh, pay me to talk to you, make a video. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, some of it has been pretty inspiring. Um, you know, some people want me to wish somebody uh you know um uh, good luck they're going through everything from a chemo or something wow. you know it's it's not just birthdays and it's and, it's a, and yeah it's a cool way to connect i think with with fans it is and it's um you know yeah, really we, awesome gesture to people because like let's say someone grew up listening to billy idol or whatever and all, you are going through chemo or something terrible or even covid because it's 2020 like right. you're going through something <laughs> terrible and then you wake up and you, uh, you can barely reach your phone and then there's steve stevens <laughs> oh, on my <laughs> fucking phone playing the goddamn top gun theme right are no, you yeah. shitting me like i can now die happily you know what i mean i could be yeah, a statistic but at least i went to the grave knowing that steve stevens played the top gun theme just, just for me that's exactly right that's exactly right yeah i mean you know um you know the, i think the fact that that, that even with our meet and greets, people come and they, they see that Idol and I are still together. We're still friends. It's not fake. It's not phony. Mm -hmm. You know, it really is very real, genuine. And um, and sometimes, you know, that we've outlasted their marriage or their 
parents <laughs> that used to bang on the door for them to lower Rebel Yell are no longer around. And so they're like, interesting. Yeah. And they're like, you know, man, you helped me through my, my youth. People or, go visit their friends. Yeah, You're or, a friend. You know, or we got married to White Wedding and, you know, it's, yeah. you know and uh, it, it was doomed. Well, don't even start. get me started about that. I, I was <laughs> a wedding right, we DJ have, for we years. Have, we have plenty more to get into, but let, let's, let's yeah. wrap this up. Uh, you know, thank you guys for checking this out. Thank you, Steve. It, yeah, my it, pleasure. Like, seriously, this is... SteveStevensGuitar.com. Steve is... Like, yeah. why are you guys not there? Absolutely, right now. Buying and stuff. find him on Cameo and on Twitter now. Also, we heard you just joined I'm, Twitter, so... Yeah. I'm going to yeah. send my at, mom at a Steve, Steve Stevens. Stevens. Yep. Steve Stevens Cameo. And she'll be like, who was that? <laughs> <laughs> he seems like a nice boy, though. <laughs> yeah. we'll, dive, we'll dive a bit more in in our, uh, our part two with Steve Stevens on 2020. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road. 